Welcome, fellow anglers, to the Working Class Fishing Podcast, a place for all anglers, amateur or expert, to share their stories and learn about fishing. Join your hosts, John and Brian, each episode as they debunk the perceived inaccessibility to fishing, break down the barriers of any and all angling methods, and hear stories from other anglers and their own journeys with fishing. Now, let's get this show started. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Class Fishing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian, and here is Mr. John Morris, Esquire, the esteemed with our sponsors. Welcome back to Working Class Fishing, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Trout Leather Nets, Anger Rooster Fly Company, Lid Rig, Max and Outfitters, and Morris Flato. All right. Thanks, John. And make sure to go check out all those awesome sponsors. They got a lot of great stuff. So without any further delay, we've been waiting a long time for this. We have a very special guest with us tonight. Uh, he is known throughout the fly community, predominantly for panfish. And it, it's one of those things where people don't think about like predominant knowing for panfish because everybody talks about catching panfish uh, just as kind of like, well, I caught a bunch of bluegill today or something else. But what makes this guest special is, is that he does it on the fly. He's actually made quite a detailed world of panfish on the fly. So we would like to introduce Mr. Bart Lombardo. Uh, he is uh, a, he has panfish on the fly. He can explain a, uh, a lot more about it uh, because he's he uh, that's his world. Um, but he is absolutely one of the premier, if not the premier, panfish fly expert out there and i know a lot of people are like how can you be an expert on panfish on the fly but uh john and i both hold bart in very high regard so bart thank you so much for coming on well guys thank you for having me on the show i'm, I'm looking forward to tonight's interview right on right on so we were talking a whole bunch about a bunch of stuff before we got started here and uh you know we were getting all set up and adjusted and everything else and you know we were talking about um you know, all the different stuff that you're doing and everything else. But for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Bart Lombardo and I've been fly fishing. God, we're probably going on, uh, you know, we're creeping up on five decades. Uh, I, I started fly fishing. Uh, well, I started fishing in general, you know, very young. Um, I probably started fly fishing or my interest in fly fishing probably uh, sparked at around uh, 12, 13 years old and been fly fishing ever since. Uh, it was a little rough go at the beginning. Like most folks that are uh, starting out in fly fishing, there is a little bit of a learning curve to it. But uh, by the time I reached my early 20s I, I more or less had you know put away the spinning rods and the bait casting rods and uh took up fishing you know with the fly rod almost exclusively and for the last say eight years or so i've been uh doing some fly fishing guiding i'm a, a retired police officer i retired as a uh, police captain um 2014 and after i retired i you know started uh doing a little bit more in the fly fishing industry. I've always been involved in, in fly fishing, um, you know, life member of Trout Unlimited and 
been a, a real avid fly tire for a lot of years. And, you know, once I retired, I had more time to dedicate to the, uh, to the sport. So, um, I had a, uh, not so much a local fly shop. They're about actually about an hour away, but, a, a good friend of mine owned a, uh, fly shop up in uh, the Northern part of the state. And he had been after me for the longest time to, uh, do some guiding for him. And when I retired, I finally had the time to do it. So, uh, I took up, uh, guiding in 2014 uh predominantly for trout um and you know i've been doing that ever since i think in 2016 uh i i started a website called panfish on the fly which is uh not ashamed to admit it but it's 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 really my true passion is is warm water fly fishing and uh, you know we could talk about all the reasons why that is but uh probably the main reason is is that here in new jersey uh, my closest trout streams are about an hour, well, about an hour and a half away. So to uh, to go out fly fishing for trout, it's a full day commitment. You know, it's three hours in the in the car back and forth, and uh, you know whatever time you're going to spend on the stream. On the other side of that coin, I could walk out my front door and and be on a local warm water pond in less than five minutes. Um, I, I live in a rural part of the state that is blessed with a lot of uh, fishing opportunities, none for trout in my neck of the woods, but um, loads of uh, farm ponds and you know, reservoirs and larger natural lakes, small man-made lakes just a ton of fishing opportunities very nearby and i like the fish i like the fish a lot and warm water fly fishing gave me that opportunity so <clears throat> i mean i, I that I, i'm gonna backtrack just just a hair here sure it is it, this is so awesome <laughs> this is uh, i'm just so thankful that you found the time to come on here um, like Brian said, we're huge fans. So, but that, you know, that boils down to the whole fish where you're at deal. You know, it's. You, yeah, you exactly. Don't, you don't, and, yeah. and that's what, you know, panfish have going for them. Um, and we should probably start off by talking, you know, you know, what the hell's a panfish? What, what do we yeah. mean when we, we use the <laughs> word panfish? So let's, let's uh, clear the air with that. And, and just but, as full disclosure, I love your explanation of the panfish. I've heard it before, but go ahead yeah and you know for me um you know when i look at panfish um you know predominantly of course members of the sunfish family but a lot of folks don't realize that uh, the sunfish family includes fish like largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and i certainly don't consider them panfish but um all the members of the uh the true sunfishes your your bluegills your pumpkin seeds your red ears your green sunfish um you know they're all included in that group of course um other members of the sunfish family like uh, crappie and uh, rock bass or warmouth, they would certainly fit into that category. And I'll also include some fish that are not necessarily part of the scientific family of sunfish, but, um, you know, fish like yellow perch, white perch, um, you know, they're even, um, you could even in some parts of the country, uh, you, although uh, fish like white bass and, you know, shoal bass, they often, they're a little bit larger, but they kind of get lumped into that category too. So when I when I talk about panfish, it's a kind of an informal definition for a wide range of fish. Uh, these fish are readily available. They're 
found throughout the country. I don't care whether you live in New Jersey or Oregon or Texas or Minnesota, you're going to find these fish and you're going to find them close by. They're going to be, uh, chances are you have a, you know, a neighborhood park pond and it's going to be loaded with these fish. So they're the fish for everyone. They're accessible to, you know, anybody that, that lives in the continental United States. They're just <clears throat> like, they're, they're this absolute gateway in the fishing. No yeah, that's, how- um, that's a good way to look at it. And that's one of the things that piqued my interest in, in panfish being involved in organizations like, you know, Trout Unlimited, uh, you know, one of the things that we did there was, you know, try to introduce more people into the sport of fly fishing to get them interested in fly fishing with the hope that, you know, they would ultimately be interested in, conser- you know, conserving the, uh, you know, the cold water environment or the environment that the fish live in. And we did that through a lot of education programs. We you know, would teach people how to, how to fly fish, how to tie flies. And as a fly fishing instructor, um, you know, teaching someone that's that's never fly fished before, it's I'm not going to say it's difficult because fly fishing is not difficult. There's this big conception that it's a, uh, you know, a, a mystical way of fishing. And, a, and for some people, it, it's, a, you know, it's a little bit difficult to grasp. But um, I, I learned and it, this this really came came home when I started guiding, uh, taking someone that's never fly fished before out onto a trout stream and to expect, expect, you know, success from somebody that's, that's never picked up a fly rod before. And you put them in an environment where the water's moving, the fish feed very selectively. Uh, it could be real challenging for a guy to get people into the fish on their, on their first trip. And I learned very quickly that if I was able to convince somebody to take a warm water trip for their first trip, so we go out fly fishing for for bass and panfish instead of trout, um, I often would get them into fish on their first cast. And that first cast may have been an abomination. I mean, it may have been absolutely horrible, but that's a great (laughs) thing about sunfish. They don't care about sloppy casts. If you're a fly tire, they don't care about your ugly flies. They're still going to eat them. at the end of the day, they're just a lot less discerning than species like trout, and they live in an environment um, that's a lot easier to fish than a than a moving trout stream in a lot of cases. So they really became the the perfect teachers themselves, and you know that's what really generated the interest. It all started by that you know getting somebody involved and trying to get more folks involved in fishing and and trying to find the uh, the easiest point of entry, if you would, into into fly fishing. And I honestly believe that that panfish are, are the answer to that. Yeah, <clears throat> you, you know, that's that's really important because the people there again, a lot of people that like to fish for largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and, and they they throw a lot of these lures and you end up with a very aggressive panfish such as a crappie or a very large bluegill or a green sunfish whatever take pick one taking their bait when they're doing that they they tend to get frustrated because it's like oh it's not that fish i want it's not that large mouth it's not that small mouth however because of that blind fury and aggression it makes them the perfect candidate to put people on their first fish and the cool part is is they use their whole body to fight so a little four inch bluegill fights pretty hard for its size uh but then you start getting into you know like 16 17 inch crappie 
uh, you're in for uh, one heck of a fight with those. Oh, without a doubt. And, and I don't want in any way, shape or form, you know, think that my, my love of fly fishing for panfish only has to do with teaching others to fish. I love these fish. It was the first fish that I caught on a fly rod. It was the first fish I caught on any type of rod. And uh, God willing, it's going to end up probably being my last fish that I'll catch on a fly rod. When I'm too old and feeble to wade a trout stream, I'm still going to be able to walk the banks of, you know, a neighborhood park pond and, and throw a fly. In regards to their fighting ability, if a bluegill grew to 10 pounds, <laughs> nobody would fish for anything else. Um, and that's a God's honest truth. These, yeah. these fish pound for pound, or in this case, ounce for ounce are just incredibly strong fighters. And if you scale that tackle down, you know, catching a bluegill on a seven weight, you know, not, it's not a whole lot of fun, but you catch that same fish on a two, three or a soft action four weight. And you, it's guaranteed to put a smile on your face that they're going to bend that rod to the grip. Uh, they fight hard. They, they're just a fantastic fish to catch on a fly. Yeah. Uh, that's what I love about it. You know, uh, you, you take a two or three weight, you know, out West, we have a lot of Euronymphing rods. Well, you guys have them too, but we have a lot of Euro nymphing rods. So you take a two weight Euro nymphing rod down to a pond and you just dangle a little nymph. You, you can see them swimming around. And, and as soon as you drop that nymph in, if it's got the right sparkle or something, they bang, they just blow it up and you're on and, and they're taking, if you don't have your drag tightened down and you just let them run, they'll run with drag. I mean, it's, oh, absolutely. They're so cool. I love the fish. And, and yes, absolutely. Uh, it's more than just showing other people how to fish for them, but they are, a fish that you can fall in love with because the other part of it is, is even us as experienced anglers, when we have a really bad day fishing for a target species, we know at the end of the day, we can always go down to the pond and we can reaffirm that we actually know what we're doing. We can get some casting practice. We can drop it in there and we can actually catch something. They are fantastic for getting the skunk <laughs> off, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are just, they're, they're, they save uh, many a day for, for a lot of anglers. But again, I pursue them for, for what they are. Um, they are a, a lot of fun. And a lot of folks equate their, their easygoing nature and their, uh, their willingness to take a fly. Because you know, they, they fish for them in the spring when these fish are spawning and they're in the shallows. And you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, they're not much of a challenge at that point because you can actually catch them on a bare hook. Um, you know, I've done it. But once that spawn is over and these, these fish change their habitat a little bit, they start moving towards deeper water and they get out of that real shallow water and they lose that aggressive nature that they have when they're either they're pre-spawn or while they're actually spawning if you're looking for a challenge in fly fishing you can also find it with these fish these fish will give you that same challenge um especially if you're targeting larger specimens you know the one thing about uh fish like sunfish uh, take the bluegill for example or any of the uh, true sunfishes you know they're a they're a forage fish. They're, they're really a, a fish that um, are fed upon by the larger predators that are, that are more sexy in fly fishing, you know, the bass, the pike, the muskie. And for these fish to become trophies, for them to get large, they have to be doing something a little bit different than the rank and file, you know, because uh, a true trophy sized bluegill, a fish that's, you know, 10, 11, 12 inches long, 
Um, number one, they're not very common, and they can be one of the hardest freshwater fish to to catch on a fly. You think about, you know, you go into your your local uh, your your local neighborhood bar, your your fly fishing bar, or your your closest tackle shop, and you go in there and you look on the walls and you'll see more than your share of 30 inch trout and 50 inch musky and, you know, 10 pound largemouth bass, but how many 13 inch bluegills have you seen hanging on a wall? <laughs> you know, these fish exist, they're out there, but they are extremely hard to catch. So if you're, if you're looking for a challenge in fly fishing, you know, try targeting some of these bigger sunfish and uh, you'll, you'll have your work cut out for you. Oh, without a doubt. And, and, you know, uh, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit. You talk about, you know, like springtime, spawn time, easy time to catch and everything else. But you've also done some stuff here where um, you've you've come up with a pretty in-depth and, you know, kind of uh, overview and then in detail of how to target these fish in the winter. Yeah. And I, and I target them, you know, all four seasons. Um, in fact, you know, this time of year here, um on the east coast uh, autumn is a fantastic time to fish for them uh, and you know every season offers something a little bit different uh, you know of course in in spring it's it's easy fishing the fish are everywhere uh, once the spawn ends you know they move off their spawning beds they move to uh, deeper water to recover from the rigors of spawning and you know they become a little bit more challenging to fish for uh, especially in in deeper water uh, fishing with a fly rod in you know deep water is a challenge in and of itself you know especially we start talking about using sinking lines and sinking leaders and different types of presentations um but there are uh, numerous opportunities during the summer uh based on time of day or you know weather conditions we can we can fish them in a lot of different ways and that also holds true for the fall fall could be a an interesting time to get out there um lakes are turning over Weather is topsy-turvy. I mean, we had some really, really cold days last week. And for the last, you know, earlier in this week, we had temperatures up into the 80s. And now we're, we got another cold front came through and it's like 45 degrees outside last night. And I think it's going to be down below freezing come morning. So, you know, the weather is all over the place and that affects fishing. And it's, it's going to, you know, where are you going to find the fish? How are you going to present flies to them? And I'll fish for them as long as the water stays soft. You know, I could I could catch bluegills on the fly. Ask any ice fisherman, and you know they'll tell you that they catch bluegills through the ice all winter long. So you know the fish will feed in cold water. It's just you need to be able to, you know, get your flies to them and present them in a way that they want to eat them because they're not going to be the same fish that they are in the spring. That that's been one of my biggest struggles is because I I have an incredible endearment for panfish and one of my biggest struggles is in the winter because my, my closest trout stream is you know I, I i cut my teeth really on bluegill on the fly rod um because that's what's closest to me i live in texas you know we're we don't exactly have all these amazing fisheries uh for trout you know we've got like the guadalupe river and stuff like that and then when when they stop but targeting panfish in the winter was one of my and still is one of the most challenging notions I have for fishing I it's so hard to pattern panfish in the winter um do you do you have any tips for that 
Sure. Um, and again, depends on, you know, where we're, we're fishing. So, um, you know, I know, for example, in Texas, where you are, you have, um, you know, a lot of warm water rivers and, you know, these fish are going to behave a little bit different in moving water than they do in, uh, you know, still waters. I do have some, uh, you know, warm water moving, you know, warm water creeks and uh, rivers in, in my neck of the woods as well. But I, I tend to do most of my cold weather pan fishing on uh, small still waters where it, it's it's easy to find the fish. Um, you have to have a pretty intimate knowledge of, um, you know, river systems to to know where these fish go you know, during the cooler weather, because fish will will move around, um, you know, they're usually seeking out deeper, uh, slower moving water during the cooler months, so they don't have to exert that much energy to, you know, stay in place as the water cools down, their metabolism cools down, they don't have, they still have to feed, but they don't have to feed as often, they don't have to feed as much. Um, so if you can find the fish, you know, the next, the next test is, you know, getting a fly to them and presenting that fly in a way that is going to want to make them eat. So this is where, you know, in, in the summer, we can catch these fish on anything. Um, I once did on a, on a joke, I was going back and forth with uh, someone on Instagram once who was kind of riding me a bit about my love for panfish and, you know, claiming that I don't know what the big deal is. You know, you can catch them on a bear hook and, uh, you know, that's, uh, and you can at certain times of the year. And, you know, he, this person had made a, a comment about how he sees them eating Cheerios down at, you know, the, he lives next to a park and, you know, there's a lot of uh, new moms that go down there with their young kids. And they always got a bag of Cheerios to keep their kids happy. And, you know, they throw Cheerios in the, uh, in the water and the bluegills come up and eat it. And that prompted me right then and there to sit down with the vice and tie a, cheerio fly and sure enough i was able to go out there and catch a bluegill on a cheerio but you're not going to do that in january you're not going to do that in february you know um here we're going to need to kind of match the hat so to speak figure out what these fish are eating and and you know try and present a fly that that rep you know represents what they're used to uh eating that time of year so during the uh, winter months, I'm, I'm a huge fan of wet flies and soft tackles. I could fish these flies very, very slowly. Um, and, you know, after a while, you get kind of a uh, sixth sense on, on how to detect strikes. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do to improve your ability to uh, detect strikes on, you know, presenting flies in deep water and presenting them slowly. Um, but soft tackles and wet flies are a big favorite. Of course, um, you know, midges and midge larvae, fish rely a lot on them during the winter months. And you can you can take a lot from some of the still water anglers that fish for trout um, with, you know, fishing flies under indicators, uh, you know, fishing them under extreme depths under indicators with like a, almost like a slip float, float type system. Mm -hmm. And uh, it works. It, you know, these same still water techniques that you use for trout and deeper water will work for panfish as well. So you can get as technical as you want with these with these fish. But I think most people are just interested in, in going out there and catching fish. And, you know, fish like a bluegill is the 
perfect fish for for most folks when they're out there fishing not a lot of folks are out there in the middle of winter you know fly fishing you know but when the weather's nice and you know that's what most people are thinking about going out and hitting the water and panfish are perfect for that without a doubt um Bart, are you going to the symposium this year? I, I will be at the symposium. Um, the International Fly Tying Symposium kicks off this weekend up in uh, Somerset, New Jersey. This is the world's largest fly tying event. Um, it's been going on, I think, for over 30 years. And I, I've been a regular uh, fly tire at this event for, for quite a while. And, you know, I will be there all weekend long tying up a bunch of panfish and other warm water patterns. It's it really is a fantastic event. And uh, it's usually the one event that that kicks off my my fly tying season. You know, I tie flies all year round. Um, but it's really once we get into the into the colder months is when I spend a lot of time behind the vice, uh, you know, tweaking old patterns, inventing new ones and filling all the holes in the boxes from uh from the past season so i'm really looking forward to this weekend's event dude one of your patterns sorry i just called you dude um one of your patterns uh i when i first started tying which um brian uh was like dude uh because you know i was tying all these these panfish flies that they were working and I was like, man, this, this is awesome. But one of them I attempted to tie that I could not figure out was the triangle bug. And I, I know now how it's tied. I've, uh, I've figured it out a little bit since, but that, that was just so perplexing on at the time of how it was tied. But I, uh, I read somewhere and then I heard on your YouTube video that the triangle bug was to keep the fish from eating it too deep. Correct. Got... Go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah panfish are, um, you know, one of the things about these guys is that they're notorious for taking flies. They get these tiny little mouths, but yet they'll, they'll take these, these flies that they have no right eating. I think you, we talked about that earlier. I don't know if we were on the air yet or not, but when we talk about, you know, anglers that are out there fishing for bass or for even Northern, I've caught, big bluegills while fishing for northern pike um on flies that are imitating bluegills you know and and yet a, a big bluegill will come up and eat this thing uh so you know they have um their mouths are way bigger than their stomachs you know uh but in reality their mouths are tiny they want to they want to try and get everything they can into their mouths and and they have a tendency to take flies very very deeply because that mouth is so small if you plan on releasing the fish, um, it could be very difficult to extract that hook. I mean, if you're taking the fish for the table, you know, you get it out any way you can and you throw it in the cooler. But if you're releasing fish, um, a deeply hooked sunfish um, is it usually is fatally injured because it's there's not a lot of room to work in there. And, and you could tear the fish up pretty bad trying to get a, uh, a deeply hooked fish. Uh, fly out of the small mouth so the whole idea behind the triangle bug was to develop a um a pattern and the triangle bug is a surface pattern so it, it you know it floats on the surface of the water and that's one of the great things about sunfish is that they love to eat on top which is another very uh endearing you know feature about these fish everybody loves dry fly fishing and 
there's there's no other fish out there that'll make you a better dry fly fisher than you know practicing with bluegill so the triangle bug was designed to allow that fish to easily take the fly off the surface but prevent it from swallowing too deeply so the triangle bug is well shaped like a triangle that's where the name comes from and the it has a very wide leading edge um, up near the hook eye that presents the uh, fish from swallowing it but it tapers down to a point at the business end of the hook that allows the uh, you know the bluegill to take it off the surface very easily and you know i've been tying this pattern for for many many years and one of the biggest challenges was coming up with a way to have the fly look uniform as, as, as a fly tire you know i want every fly that comes off my vice to you know look the same and especially if you ever start selling flies commercially that's extremely important that you know you, the, all, every fly that you that you buy a dozen flies and all 12 of them look the same and the the triangle bug is is basically tied with a diamond shaped piece of foam that is is folded in half to to form a triangle and right in the center of that folded edge you poke a little hole and you slide that over the eye of the hook and um you know before doing that you can add your tail of choice add your leg material and then you, you slide that uh, foam body over the eye of the hook and you secure it down near the bend and it creates that that triangle shape and in an effort to produce uniform shapes you know, I've, I've done a lot of different things over the years I, I have a good friend of mine who um is a uh, or was an engineer in his uh, working days and you know he developed all kinds of templates for me to try and create this this pattern uniformly and eventually i settled on uh contacting the folks over at river road creations they they make um i think they make almost all of the foam cutters that are out there in the fly tying industry i was for, about to say they make the chubby cutters everything and the every, they make all that stuff. yeah all those cutters so they actually make a cutter for me. They they actually make a cutter for the triangle bug. And this allows anybody to, you know, cut stamp out that perfectly shaped piece of foam to, uh, you know, tie it in the most popular size that I fish it. I tie it in a, in a number of sizes, but, um, you know, I had them create a, a cutter for me in, you know, the ideal size for, for most panfish. And, that really simplifies the tying for a lot of folks. They can uh, just stamp out these diamond shapes uniformly. Everyone looks the same, you know, and you can get them tied up and and get a great looking fly with a minimal bit of, minimal amount of, of fuss and effort. So, what's in your opinion? What is the optimal size for panfish flies? Well, it you know I think. I probably tend to fish bigger flies than than most people um, for primarily because I'm interested in in larger sunfish. And so I fish a a lot of size six, a lot of size eight flies, which a lot of anglers would think they're are too too large for for sunfish. I think most people are probably fishing flies in the you know, 12 to 14 size range, maybe size 10. 
but um, a lot of my patterns are are tied on um, slightly larger hooks on you know size six, size eight, size eight probably being the uh, the predominant size. So do you do you prefer a um, of course depending on pattern, but um, do you prefer short shank, long shank, wide gap, normal gap? Well, you said it right at the beginning. It depends on the pattern. You know, um, it depends on what you're trying to imitate. You know, I, I tie a, a tiny little baby bluegill streamer for fishing when um, fish are post spawn and we got all these young of the year fry swimming around. And that is tied on a, a very, very short shank hook, you know, wide gap short shank hook. You take a fly like the triangle bug, um, you know, that's tied on a fairly long shank hook. I'll, I'll lean towards a longer shank if the, the pattern allows for it, just to uh, really make the unhooking a little bit easier for, for that's a lot what of these fish. To ask. Yeah, so, but really for me, hook sizes, it has to fit the pattern that I'm tying. So it really, the length of the hook is, is almost entirely dependent on the, uh, you know, what you're trying to imitate with that fly. So the panfish, is the pan the panfish wibbler is yours as well right yeah and that's um and again a lot of these flies they they come out of my you know my trout and steelhead and salmon fishing you know every you can catch panfish on just about anything that's one of the great things about them you don't have to go out and buy special flies for them if you're a trout fisherman you could take those trout flies to any warm water lake or pond and every one of those flies in your trout box are going to catch panfish you know, they're going to have, they're going to imitate what the fish eat and the fish are going to eat them. Um, the panfish wiggler actually stems from a, a steelhead pattern. I was, I was fishing up in, I think it was up in Michigan um, on the Pierre Marquette. And, uh, you know, I was in a, in a fly shop up there and I had uh, picked up a, a, you know, a couple flies for, for that steelhead trip and, and one of them, it was the fly, I think, was called the Springs Wiggler. And, you know, it was tied with a, you know, bright chenille body. It had an overwing and a shell back and a tail of uh, fox squirrel hair, I think it was. And one of these flies ended up, uh, you know, in a warm water box at some point. Maybe it was stuck to a drying patch on a vest. And, you know, I was out on a lake and, started throwing it and you know right away started catching fish off the bat so um i just took that fly and modified it a little bit changed the body materials up a little bit got rid of that um you know that bright estes body although that caught fish as well but i was looking to using that as a platform to imitate more natural food forms like damselfly nymphs or dragonfly nymphs and it ended up being just an incredibly effective warm water pattern so uh and that happens more often than uh you know like so many of the wet fly patterns that i fish are you know they're they're coming out of uh you know the trout world um maybe with a few modifications or maybe no modification at all uh that's again the great thing about these fish they they eat such a wide variety of food forms that you can fish a, a very wide variety of flies for them. you know when you think about uh, all the food that's available to a trout um and it's a lot you know there's a lot of different aquatic insects a lot of different terrestrial insects um but they're they're cyclic you know the the bugs aren't always around at the same time of year 
you know, once those Hendrickson's or Sulphur's or PMD's hatch for the year, you don't see them again for another year. And warm water environments are are much more fertile. There's there's such a larger variety of uh, prey items for for warm water fish um, that you know the, the the flies that you could tie for them. You know the numbers are bewildering. Uh, you and that's one of the great things too about these guys. If you're a fly tire, um, you know the sky's the limit. You, you can really have a lot of fun. You know coming up with patterns to chase you know warm water species um and not just panfish but fish like bass and predators like pike and muskie um you know you can really have a lot of fun behind the vice when it comes to tying flies for these fish especially so, if the skill level's not there you know because they don't care about your ugly flies they're still going to eat it absolutely <laughs> so when, when you uh you know I'll, I'll step back a little bit what what bug were you fishing when you got your first panfish on the fly? Well, my first, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, my first panfish on the fly probably came when I was, uh, it was definitely the first fish that I caught on a fly rod, without a doubt. Um, and it was, it probably, you know, it may have been a, um, well, I, I probably can figure out what it was. Um, you know, depending on how long you've been at this game, uh, you know, back in the in the seventies, if you went into your local Walmart, you can you can buy a little round plastic container, the kind of thing that uh, has segments in it for storing like split shot. Mm -hmm. And there'd be a dozen brightly colored flies that were tied over in China or Japan or Korea or somewhere. <laughs> and you know, they they were bright blue and yellow, and you know, they were marketed as trout flies. But you know, you and I remember this, it was just this round container that you spun around to the opening, and you know, there were a bunch of different dry flies in there. And there's a real good possibility that, that first sunfish came on something like that. Because my first uh, you know, fly rod was was borrowed from my old man, you know, when he wasn't yeah. looking. I strapped it to my bike and I pedaled my myself down to a neighborhood pond and started flailing away. And um, so it was either a uh, you know, a fly I snitched out of his vest or you know, one of these these, you know cheap dry flies that you'd buy in a, in a Walmart or a local bait and tackle shop. Um, but once I got interested in fly fishing, um, fly tying quickly followed. And, you know, by the time I was uh, in my late teens, I was, you know, collecting roadkill and tying my old flies. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, this right now, this background is blurred behind me, but this is my, my fly tying room and I'll, uh, I'll see if I can clear this up for a second, but this is, you know, this is just a hot mess behind me. And, um, but <laughs> like I, I literally have my tying room, you know? That's... Yeah. Well, no, this is, this is pretty extreme. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I got the whole lower floor of my house devoted to this. So it's a, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on behind me here. But yeah, so uh, I, I think I enjoy fly tying as much as the fly fishing, to be honest with you, um, you know, and if a, if a day comes around where I can't uh, fly fish anymore, I'll probably still tie flies. I don't know what the hell I'll do with them, but I'll probably keep tying them because <laughs> I, I enjoy that as much as the uh, fly fishing. Well, why I was interested in knowing what you got your first panfish on is, is I'm, I'm thinking back to what I got my first panfish on with a fly rod. 
and and I want to say that it it was it was uh gosh um it was some kind of like elk haircatus or something like yeah, that yeah and, and I was just kind of goofing around I, I was like oh I'm gonna go down here and I see all these little fish jump you you know because they're they got that audible snap yeah when they come up yeah, I'm yeah. like oh, what is that I didn't know what it was I was like what is that and I I take the fly and put it over there and it'd come up I'm like ooh maybe it's a salamander or something I don't know but it was like, and then all of a sudden I would ping and then it's got the flop and all that. And I was like, what do I got? And it's like, oh, it's a bluegill. Cool. You know, and then keep going at it. And oh, wow. You know, what's this thing? I thought I'd caught like an invasive rock bass here or something. And that we don't, it was actually a war mouth. You know, I was like, I've never right, caught right. one of these before, but you know, it, it just becomes like this, this whole like discovery thing. And then you haul out a little further, let it sink a little bit, start stripping, boom, you got a crappie. And it's like, you got all these different things going on and, and you're absolutely right. The, the forage is insane because I'll take one bug, like John's tied me up all kinds of stuff. He's like, dude, this will catch some. And so I'll go out and I'll throw that. And I start stripping that boom, I get a bass and then I'll get a, um, like a crappie. I'm like, those are bass and crappie killers, but then I'll end up with a bluegill or a warm mouth or a pumpkin seed or something, you know, it's just all these different fish all over the place. And they're so aggressive and they eat all this stuff and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter in a sense when the time's right, but you know, we were talking about the winter fishing and things like that too. Kind of, you know, what are you looking for when you're doing that winter fishing as far as like structure and um, you know, where you're targeting those fish? So getting back to the winter fishing, um, let's just take, you know, uh the sunfish, the bluegills, for example. Um, what tends to happen when the weather cools down is, you know, the, the fish will will seek stable, but they want a stable environment. So, um, you know, the shallows can be a, a very unstable environment. Uh, you know, cloudy days, the water cools down, sunny days, it warms up. Uh, cold fronts come in, it cools down, you know, so they're going to retreat to deeper water because they're, they're looking for that stability. And so when I'm targeting fish during the winter, uh, what I usually look for, number one is a small body of water, because in, in larger reservoirs and larger lakes, um, you know, they can, their, their winter habitat may be water that's just inaccessible by, uh, by a fly rod. You know, you are, there is a, um, I don't want to use the word ceiling, because we're going in the other direction, but there is a bottom, you know, that you can effectively reach with a fly rod i mean you can you can throw start throwing sinking lines and but one of the things with panfish is that they're small and you you really can't find uh sinking lines in these light line weights and uh, i have no desire to go out there and chase them with a seven weight with a full sinking line just to catch one because uh, it'll be like fighting a wet sock but you know so what i look for is a small body of water where i can reach the um the deepest part of that lake and the deepest part of the lake is not that deep. So I'm looking for a small, shallow bodies of water where uh, say the deepest part of the lake is eight, 10, 12 feet deep. Um, those are depths that I can certainly probe where to fly. And um, so I, I avoid the, um, the larger rivers. I avoid, you know, the bigger lakes and reservoirs that I focus on small farm ponds. I'll, I'll focus on small creeks where I can readily identify those those deep water sections and those deep water sections are not extremely deep. 
So during the winter, that's what I focus on. And it's just, it's slow presentations, making sure that the flies are down at the level where you think the fish are going to be. And that's usually fairly close to the bottom, although they will suspend at times. And, you know, you just move around a lot until you, you, you make that first contact. And if you do make contact, whether it's a, just a bump or an actual hooked fish, now you're you're in an area that you spend a little bit more time dissecting because they they do tend to school up in in cooler weather so if you catch one there's others likely around um so that's a you know that's really my go-to technique for that now once we get into um like after ice out and it's still winter um but the water's free of ice and you know then again i'm, I'm looking for small bodies of water that'll heat up quickly and I tend to focus on, you know, small dark bottomed coves that are protected from the wind. If you get a bright sunny day, even if the temperatures are, you know, at freezing or a little bit above, but as long as that sun's shining, it'll start to warm up that, that water in, in those dark bottom coves, those shallow uh, dark bottom flats. And the fish will start to make forays into those areas to feed. Uh, they won't stay there long as, you know, they may only move in there for a couple hours during the day, and then they're going to retreat back to deeper water. But, you know, as you start getting closer to the spring, uh, these fish are feeding more, they're, they're getting ready for the spawn. Um, and then sooner or later, they're going to start making these forays into shallower water to, you know, seek out spawning habitat. But then a cold front comes through, snotty weather comes through, and it pushes them back deep again. So what I look for for winter fishing is, um, you know, a couple sunny days in a row where, you know, we may start to get those water temperatures elevated a little bit and make sure that I'm fishing in the warmest part of the day. So I'm not getting up at the crack of dawn and heading out there, but instead I'm fishing at, you know, two, three, four in the afternoon where the sun's had all day to work its magic on the water. And um, that's really the key to, to winter fishing is, is locating the fish and then, you know, fishing during a time of day where their metabolism's at, their metabolism is at the highest and they're going to be a little bit more willing to feed. Yeah, that's, that's really good stuff because um, I, I know for myself, I would love to target panfish on the fly year round. And the challenge of the winter is always that the fishing is very slow. It's not that the fish aren't there, but it's a very slow time of year to, you know, target fish. It doesn't matter what kind of fish it is. Everybody's, you know, trout species, everybody says, well, trout like cold, well, they like cold to an extent, but you get that happy medium point <clears throat> or a steelhead. Everybody's like, oh man, steelhead love cold, especially winter steelhead. Well, they run in the winter. It doesn't mean that they like it when it's minus five outside and the river is, you know, starting to form ice on the edge. They 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 kind of like to have a little bit of warmth so that they're like, okay, I'm not getting out of control. But something like a panfish, I mean, that's they they're known for a hundred degree day. You could have a fire bite going. Yeah, and you're not going to have that in the winter. You know, it's going to be a different game because again, the fish don't need to feed that much. Their metabolism is is lower. Their need to feed is lower. Um, so you have to you got to number one, be fishing at the, the optimal time um, and, and select a body of water where you have the ability to put a fly in front of them. You know, if, if you, if you're fishing a lake with depths of 30, 40, 50 feet, um, those fish may be holding in water deeper than 20 feet and you're just not going to get them on a fly. Now, 
um, it also depends on how you're fishing. You know, if you have the ability to fish from shore, if it's your only way you can fish is from shore, then you got to pick a small body of water, you know, a small farm pond with a, with a dam that has the deepest water right near shore that you can probe those depths from the shore. Um, if you could get out in some sort of watercraft, a uh, kayak, a uh, float tube, um, you may have better access to deeper water. Of course, if you are fishing from a kayak or a larger boat, uh, electronics can save the day. You know, I can locate these schools of fish, you know, with my fish finder on either my bass boat or my kayak and, you know, try and figure out if, if what I'm looking at are, are sunfish or crappie and, you know, then get a fly down to them. So, you know, electronics can certainly help during, during cooler weather. Um, but it's, this is one of those seasons where if you're looking for a challenge, the panfish will give you a challenge because it's not going to be easy fishing in any way, shape or form, but it's, it's better than sitting home, you know, suffering from cabin fever. You know? <laughs> and that's one of the other things that I love about um, sunfish. I recently wrote, wrote an article on the blog at panfish on the fly on on how panfish made me a better trout fisher um, because, you know, we, we get better by repetition. We get better thing by doing things over and over again. Um, so logically, the more you fly fish, the better you're going to get at it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that, that fishing for panfish can make you a better trout angler, bass angler, saltwater angler, you know, whatever your, your bag is, you know, these guys can help you out because, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can fish for them, a lot of different methods we can use. Um, they're, they're just a really cool fish. I love them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't be where I was fly fishing wise if it weren't for panfish. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, they're just a, they really are, and you know, we mentioned that earlier. They're they're a gateway fish for a lot of folks. Um, it's how most of us get started in fishing. You know, whether it's with a cane pole and a worm, or a spinning rod, or you know, and that's how I started out. You know, I started out with the with the cane pole and a worm, and then a closed face spinning reel, then an open face spinning reel, and then I struggled for a couple of years with a bait casting reel, and then I discovered fly fishing, and uh, that's where it all fell apart. You know, um. <laughs> <laughs> nothing falls apart with fly fishing. It just gets better, more challenging. I mean, it, it does the whole thing. And that's the other thing too, is that you never stop learning. I, I get, um, and I, I chuckle every time I hear it, you know, when, you know, it's when I hear, you know, Bart Lombardo, the panfish expert, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, there, there's a, um, you know, a few things that maybe I considered myself an expert in over, over the years, um, you know, in, in law enforcement and the tactical operations I was involved in, you know, I was an expert marksman, you know, I had very good shooting skills, but they kind of plateaued, you know, this, I mean, but with fly fishing, I never stopped learning, you know, uh, when, learning how to shoot. I got to the point where I can hit my target whenever I wanted to. And, you know, that was, that was kind of the, the zenith. You, you arrived, you were, you were a good shooter, but with fly fishing, um, I'm always learning. I'm, I'm always learning whether I'm out on the trout stream, uh, whether I'm, you know, on a, on a local, you know, lake fishing for bluegills, 
I just about every time I'm on the water, I, I learn something new and that just builds to that knowledge base. And I don't think you ever become a true expert in, in fly fishing. I think uh, there's always room to learn more, you know? Um, and that's one of the things that I love about the sport is that it can, you can take it as far as you want. If you're just a casual angler that uh, picks up a fly rod, you know, once a year on a two week vacation out West and, you know, that's what you consider fly fishing. That's, that's great. Um, if you're somebody like me that, you know, basically their life revolves around it, then, you know, you can, you can take it to that level as well. It is, it's whatever you want to make out of it. You could um, make it as complicated or as simple as you want, which is another great thing about panfish. You could, if you're looking for just simple, they are your your answer to that. You know, I could walk out the door with a Altoids tin full of flies. You know, nothing, just a little box like this with a with a bunch of flies in it, stick it in a shirt pocket, grab a three or four weight, and I'm out the door, and I can enjoy an entire afternoon of fishing. I don't know what it is about trout fishing. I feel naked if I'm on the stream and I don't have a thousand flies on my body. Um, I feel like I'm not prepared for for the day. But I could get out there on the river, you know, with a little box like this and, you know, with a couple dozen flies, there's, I have no worries that I'm not going to go out there and catch fish. Yeah. So, th so there is, there is one fly bar that we've got some friends in this realm, right? And this was featured in Tinkara Angler. And that's the James Wood Kabari. What was the inspiration behind the James Wood Kabari? Well, the James Wood Kabari was um, inspired by a fly called the James Wood Bucktail. The and Bucktail, the yeah. Yeah, so the James Wood Bucktail, um, that is not my fly. That that fly um, hails out of Edinburgh, Virginia. There's a, um, a gentleman, matter of fact, I think I may even have one of his books here on my desk. But uh, Harry Murray owns a fly shop in... Um, edinburgh virginia and and harry murray is a uh, he's a trout and smallmouth bass guru down there um and i happened to swing by his shop once and actually i don't even know if i first came across i don't think i came across this fly in his um shop initially i i think i came across it um watching a, a fly tying video from i think it was the ohio fly fishers a, a gentleman by the name of joe cornwell i think is his name and he had a, a video out there where he was tying this james wood bucktail and the james wood bucktail was a um a really strange looking fly it's um it's it's a simple fly to tie it's tied with only three materials uh white bucktail yellow chenille and blue chenille it has a big bulbous blue chenille head a, a sparse bucktail wing that encompasses the body uh, 360 degrees and a uh, the body itself is just tied up of uh, yellow chenille so it's just yellow chenille wrapped on a hook a, a veil of bucktail around it you know that basically is 360 degrees around the uh, shank of the hook and then in front of that, a big blue chenille head. And the fly intrigued me as just odd looking, you know, and it, you know, it's supposed to imitate a baby sunfish. I don't know. I've seen a lot of sunfish. Um, I've never seen one that looks like that. And um, 
Harry Murray designed this fly. The fly actually has its roots in salt water. I think the fly was originally designed from a bonefish pattern um, that I think, has, as Harry tells a story in, in one of his books, he was gearing up for a bonefish uh, trip and had contacted somebody at the destination that he was going to be fishing for and, you know, had some bonefish flies that were tied up for this trip that never materialized. And they ended up being used, you know, on a, you know, one of his local creeks and he started catching bass on them left and right. And the colors of the blue and yellow was supposed to imitate a, an immature sunfish, which, you know, are prime forward species for smallmouth bass. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. This is a, a tide. It was a large fly tied on a size two or a four to attract the attention of bass. But I took that fly and I, you know, I tied some up in, in the larger sizes for smallmouth. And I caught a lot of bass on them. I caught smallmouth. I caught largemouth. But then I started catching these giant bluegills on these size two and size four, uh, you know, bucktails. So I scaled the fly down. I started tying it in size six and size eight, and it became one of my, you know, most popular warm water patterns. It was just a, a killer fly. That smaller fly still attracted the attention of bass and pickerel, but it, it caught scores and scores of um, panfish as well. So the whole Kabari thing came about. Um, I was a really early adopter of uh, Tenkara here. Um and, and really my my foray into Tenkara is, is kind of a, a different route. I was probably, you know, way before I got involved in Tenkara, I had discovered what we're now calling European nymphing or tight line nymphing. Um, I always kind of followed the uh, competitive angling circuit. And, you know, I learned about what the Czechs and the Poles were doing in some of these competitions. Uh, you know, with the methods they were using with these, with this tight line nymphing, what we're now calling Polish nymphing, Czech nymphing. And I started to replicate that here. But the problem was, is that, you know, I couldn't find the long rods. The, the longest fly rod I could find was a 10 foot fly rod that I had for fishing out of float tubes, you know, out West. It was a five or a six weight and, you know, far too heavy. You know, we mentioned earlier about these, 10, 11 foot two weights that we're using now for, for these fish. <laughs> so I was looking for a long light rod and, um, you know, I was an avid backpacker in the day and I was on one of these, uh, ultralight backpacking forums and, you know, somebody started talking about this new 10 car rod. This is back in 2009 when, uh, Daniel Gajardo first started 10 car USA. And, um, I, I reached out to him and I had him send me a rod out here to the East coast. And I started using that equipment for, for Euro nymphing, you know, because it, that the, the rods weren't being manufactured, you know, on a regular basis. And then I discovered the whole 10 car thing and, and the, just the uh, incredible way to fish with those, with those types of rods. And eventually, like everything else, they ended up in the warm water environment at wells because yep. there's there's not a I mean, that is a perfect tool for for catching panfish on the fly. And um, I was, uh, you know, friendly with the folks over at uh, Tenkara Angler and had submitted a couple articles in the past for them. And that's where that Kabari came from was just on a whim. I decided, well, what if we took those, those same colors and, 
you know, this same style of fly, but tied it as a reverse hackle. And, and that's how that uh, James Wood Kabari came about. But how does it fish? It fishes awesome. It fishes awesome. <laughs> it does. It fishes very good. And I've even caught trout on it. Um, I've caught actually caught a lot of trout on it. And it's, it's, it's an odd little fly. You know, it really is an odd little fly. Um, but one of the things about the James Wood bucktail uh, that I think makes that fly so effective is the number, probably the way I fish it and the way the fly is, is tied and the way it floats or, or fishes in the water. It almost has like a like a neutral buoyancy. It doesn't sink really quick. It just kind of slowly settles down in the water. And you can fish it like a drop bait. You can make a cast to a fallen tree and, and just let that fly sink down and watch that leader for any ticks or sign of a tiger. Often fish will take it on a uh, as it's dropping. And if nothing takes it on the drop, then instead of stripping it back, um, you know, using a series of strips, giving the fly an erratic stop and go motion through the water i use a, a figure eight or a hand twist retrieve to slowly glide it back to me so it has this slow continuous movement and if you've ever watched um especially in a warm water environment how fish swim around they don't they don't dart hither and fro they just kind of cruise around they they you know they swim with a purpose and i think that's very attractive to a predator a predator isn't looking to uh you know they learn pretty quickly that you know other fish prey that's alert to their presence are usually difficult to to capture you know they're gonna they're gonna swim away they're gonna dart away you know but that 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 fish that's out there you know not paying attention to its surroundings just kind of meandering around is easily ambushed and i think that james wood bucktail when it's fished on that slow hand twist retrieve kind of presents that opportunity to you know predators whether they're bluegills or fish like bass and i took that blue and yellow pattern i think i tie it in at least nine different colors to imitate um you know a wide range of of juvenile fish whether it's you know young of the year bass young of the year crappy um pickerel so I've, I've changed up the colors on that pattern um, and I fish it with a lot of success. It's just a, it's just a great pattern. And I, I really think it's that slow, steady retrieve that, you know, the fish, they really key in on that. Yeah. I think that's why musky gliders are so effective is because they, they do just that. They glide. They're it's just... the exact same principle. You know, whether you're fishing for a big predator, I mean, let's face it, a bluegill is a predator as well. Oh, Maybe absolutely. his prey is a damselfly nymph and not a, you know, 12 inch sucker. But at the end of the day, they're still consuming these items. And, you know, so if you, you, you try and key in on, on what makes these fish tick and, and how their prey behaves and, you know, what's going to trigger that, that fish to strike. Yeah, without a doubt, I, it, that it just hits all those, all those uh, that strike criteria. That's what makes it, you know, tasty, for lack of a better word. It's they're like, hey, this is an easy meal, and I'm going to get these calories off of this, so I'm going to eat it. Yeah, but that that goofy blue and yellow Jameswood bucktail, like I said, it doesn't look like a baby bluegill to me, but it certainly looks like something to these fish. So they uh, they they take it. They, I, I saw that, and I was like. That is incredibly simple to tie. 
And I was like, I've, I've got to ask him about that. I've got to know uh, because I saw the James Wood bucktail because you, you talked you talked about the bucktail in that article as well. And there was there was a photo of the bucktail. And then I saw the Kabari. I was like, man, I've got to ask about that. Yeah, it's, a, it's like I said, I wish I, could, I wish that fly came out of my mind, but it didn't. But I uh, I certainly fish it a lot. But I like to give credit where credit was due. And, uh, you know, Mr. Murray down in Edinburgh, Virginia, he is the uh, the creator of that pattern. Now, all the other color variations, I'll, I'll take credit for those because um, he only tied it in the blue and yellow. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a great little pattern. And I catch and that's, you know, come a full circle on this. Um, we started talking about this before about the warm water environment. One of the things that I love about fly fishing for panfish is the interaction with these other predators. Um, you know, fish like largemouth bass, chain pickerel, northern pike. Um, I'm amazed at the the number of large bass, you know, I'm talking fish in the five, six pound class that I catch on, you know, size eight, size 10, size 12 flies. It just blows my (laughs) mind. So you never know. And, you know, if you want practice, and I mentioned that in this recent article, you know, you want practice fighting, you know, big fish, uh, you know, you'll get that with the pan fishing because one minute you're catching you know, little six inch bluegills. And now you're, you know, on the next cast, you're tied into a two or three pound largemouth on that two or three weight. And you're going to have your hands full. You're going to have, you know, you're going to get that same adrenaline rush as you will, you know, throwing 12 inch flies for, for muskie. Cause now all of a sudden, you know, your world's change. You're, you're, you're calm and relaxed and you're catching these small little bluegills and then the water erupts and, you know, you got your hands filled with a, with a big predator. So that's, that's what I love about it. Um, it's just a mixed bag. You never know what's going to come up. You go out in a trout stream, you can pretty much, ex- you know, you, you know what to expect. You know, you're going to catch a brown trout, rainbow trout, or brook trout, or maybe the occasional whitefish or sucker or, you know, chub or fall fish whatever is swimming in your trout streams um but in the warm water environment it could be anything you know i've caught while fishing for for bluegills i've caught carp i've caught channel catfish bullheads uh largemouth bass smallmouth bass chain pickerel northern pike all these fish and i've had encounters with large predators like muskie where they weren't interested in my fly but they were certainly interested with the in the fish that I had hooked on that fly. So, you know, you know, you have fish blow up on the side of the boat as you're, you're trying to land, you know, your small pan fish and then a bass or a pike or a muskie sees that as a, as an opportunity for an easy meal. So it, there's some, some excitement to be had out there. I, I uh, 100% dude, I, I, I was throwing this little, this stupid little size 10 hollow fly bucktail I was messing around with. It didn't work at all, but it was, you. those have to be so incredibly sparse to be that small. And, but it hits the water and it floats and it's not really sinking. And then it finally starts to sink and I get one strip on it and it gets smashed. I was like, this is awesome. This is exactly what I want. You know, I want to use all these size 10 hooks and tie, tie hollow fly bucktails. <laughs> and, but I'm stripping it in. I was like, what is that? It's like, that's not a trout. And um, I didn't know what it was to hit the net, but what I did know is that there was a big ass chain pickerel 
chasing my bluegill that uh, what I thought was a bluegill at the time that I was stripping into my net was chasing it and I kind of almost regret not letting it take it I kind of want to know how that would have transpired yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it, it ended up being a blue blueback herring <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah. yeah there are um there are a lot of different opportunities <clears throat> excuse me in in fly fishing and you know I'm I'm not a trout snob I will fish for anything that swims with a fly rod I make a trip to Maine every every spring um under the guise of going salmon fishing but um I end up spending more time out you know instead of spending time fishing for landlocks in the stream I'm out there on on the lake that the stream flows into throwing flies for big pickerel you know and I I enjoy that more than the salmon fishing. You know, they, they, they're just, uh, they're just crazy predators, you know, and if you've ever seen any of these, uh, you know, videos of Northern pike fishing in Saskatchewan with these epic topwater eats, it's the same thing, but just on a smaller scale, you know, instead of throwing eight, nine inch flies for 30, 40 inch fish on an eight or a 10 weight, I'm throwing four to six inch flies on a, five or six weight for you know 24 inch fish you know but they they eat the same way they they grab the flies at the boat they blow up on them they you know come zooming in from 20 feet away to intercept them there's just a lot of cool warm water fishing opportunities in addition to the panfish do you ever get after um stripers yeah so we have a um a, actually right now is the time here in in jersey we are catching some absolutely stellar fish uh off our beaches right now um there's some really big striped bass uh swimming around but i'm also uh, pretty fortunate to live very close to the delaware river and the delaware river has a um pretty much an untapped striper fishery um, not a lot of folks are, are fishing for them and and i've discovered over the years that you know these fish are in the river year round you know and um you know it's it's just an incredible fun to go out there with a seven or eight weight and catch these uh, you know schoolie sized you know 24 to 28 inch stripers and then every once in a while you get surprised with a you know with a big cowfish that's you know up there in uh, you know 30 40 pounds or bigger but it's a it's a pretty cool fishery and the uh the quads a, a tailwater here and stripers get they get sucked in on discharge sometimes and they live in the river year round and it's awesome because they eat the rainbows that they stop so yeah, you, you, you can throw like seven inch rainbow trout streamers and just smoke these stripers and they're huge yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's a lot of fishing opportunities out there um, if you start looking outside of, of trout. And that's, you know, that's the thing. Most people, when they think of fly fishing, that's the first thing that comes to mind is, is trout and salmon. And, you know, they don't think about all the warm water opportunities or all the saltwater opportunities. And by saltwater, most people are thinking, you know, the exotics, the bonefish, the tarpon, you know, the permit but you know we have tons of saltwater fishers here up here in the northeast um fish like bluefish striped bass weak fish even you know flatfish like flounder and, and fluke uh, they're just incredibly fun to catch on the fly and they're accessible to anybody you know so there's a lot more fly fishing opportunities out there if you just look around well 
Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible how much you can go after on the fly. That's that's the one thing that's just so incredible about it. And uh, just to have that variety of species, everything else in there, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's endless. And and yeah, the the near shore species, saltwater. Um, I mean, how can you go wrong with that? It, that's that's one of the funnest things to to pursue. Um, we are coming up on our hour here. Actually, we're probably a little over. That's okay, though, because this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, Bart, uh, where can people get in touch with you at? As well, the easiest way to get in touch with me, um, or if you want to see um, you know, what I'm doing in the at least the warm water side of things, is I have a website called panfish on the fly and um so there's a lot going on over there uh but you can find me on all of the you know the the regular social media outlets whether it's uh facebook twitter instagram um there's even a inactive i don't do the tiktok thing but i did grab the domain name uh so you know maybe someday but not right now um (laughs) youtube is uh i I think i'm going to be doing a lot more with youtube in the upcoming uh, year Uh, i've some of my stuff is a little bit on the back burner, at least for another six or so months um actually in the process of writing a book um i was uh I'm writing, a, I have a book coming out. Um, it's probably going to hit the, uh, hit the bookstores in 2024. Um, but Imberflex publishers are, uh, you know, I'm working with them to produce a, a book on uh, fly fishing for panfish. Uh, no big surprise there. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of my time has been spent recently working on that. Um, but the, uh, you know, we do have a, I do have a Facebook group, um, again, entitled Panfish on the Fly. And this thing has grown. I never in a million years would have um, expected a fly fishing group to reach these numbers. I don't know what, I, I could check real quick. I want to say we're probably upwards of somewhere around 27,000 members in this group wow. right now. So there's a lot of closet pan fishers out there that that don't want to admit that, you know, these are their favorite fish too. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just blown away that this group um, has grown to this size that, you know, I have almost 30,000 like-minded fly fishers out there that, you know, think that fly fishing for panfish is the bomb. Yeah. But I do, uh, like I said, I'm on all the, um, I have a pretty active uh, Instagram feed again, panfish on the fly. And just about anywhere that you're you're looking for me, you'll find me under that panfish on the fly. Uh, my email address is info at panfish on the fly, and um, I'm always available to answer questions or, or take emails from folks. So that's one way to get a hold of me. Um, but the website panfish on the fly is probably your uh, best bet. That and the email address, but you can find me just about everywhere under under that name. Awesome. Um... Wow. You know, uh, just so much cool stuff we talked about tonight, John, uh, you got anything else? Dude, uh, I mean, I could, I could literally sit here and talk to you and yeah, that's the thing is <laughs> we could talk for another four hours, honestly. Well, you know, sometime in the future, you guys want to have me back and you want to zone in. Oh, on oh for sure. Aspect we're, we're, of this, yeah. You know, we can certainly do that. You know, whether it's the focus is going to be winter pan fishing or fly development or, you know, whatever we want, you know, we, you can, you can 
expand this out as much as you want. And that's the great thing about it. Well, Bart, we're gonna have we're gonna have to do that. We <laughs> of course, uh, do do just thank you so much for coming on and sharing your vast knowledge on this topic that all three of us. I'm one. I'm one of your panfish on the fly members on Facebook, but uh, yeah, I'm another one. So. <laughs> but uh, just thanks. Thanks for sharing all this, man, and just for taking. The, this has been a, a true treat and pleasure for us. Um, we're we're pretty nerdy when it comes to catching anything on the fly, but panfish. Uh, we we probably fist fight someone that didn't like catching panfish on the yeah. fly. But just <laughs> just thanks so much for coming on, Bart. Well, guys, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come out here and, uh, you know, talk panfish for a while. Um, they, I just, they, I love them. They're, they're just a, a great fish, but again, it's not the only, I do, I fish for everything and, uh, but they, they hold a special place in my heart and, uh, I, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this weekend to get out there spending, uh, you know, a weekend at this. Have you guys ever been to the symposium out here? No, it's uh, it's too far of a trip for me. Sadly. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. Yeah, I want to tie there someday. Um, yeah, if um, for folks that are listening, um, obviously anyone here in the in Northeast, um, this probably won't go before that. But I'm also at um, a few of the fly fishing shows. So uh, the big show here in Edison in January, I'll be tying flies there. I'll be at uh. Marlboro, Massachusetts, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania this year. I usually do a couple other local shows in uh, New York and Maryland. And when the book comes out, I'll be doing the whole circuit. So I'll be out there uh, in the West Coast. I'll be Middle State. I'll be down your way in Texas. Actually, that's where my editor's from. Um, Aaron Reed from, he recently uh, wrote a book, Fly Fishing Austin in Central Texas. He's the guy that got me hooked up with uh, this whole book project. So um, I'll be taking a trip down there. Um, I was hoping to get down there this year. It hasn't happened yet, but um, maybe in the spring I'll, I'll be down, down Texas way. So well, dude, uh, stay in touch. We, I will. We'll, we'll do that. We'll stay in touch because I'm a, I'm a gar enthusiast and I would love yeah. to get you on some really big gar. That would be cool. Yeah, I had a, an opportunity to play around with some of them in Mississippi some year back, and they were just a wild fish, wild fish. And uh, <laughs> like I said, and uh, you know, maybe I, I get out west every year too. I'm out in yeah. uh, you know Montana, Idaho. Um, I've actually fished uh, Oregon and Washington a couple times. So uh, yeah, hopefully we guys we can hook up and wet a line together sometime. Please. Please do. Uh, I, I would love to take you out for some something here, uh, whether that be surf perch or, uh, you know, if you come at the right time of year, we'll just have to see what time of year it is because we could get you on the best salmon in the world for sure. Awesome. So awesome. Um, Bart, thank you so much for coming on. Just wanted to say thank you again. And um, for our listeners out there, we're going to have all of Bart's information in the show notes. So make sure that you click on all that stuff. And if you want to find out more about Bart through us, you can always find us on Instagram under Working Class Fishing Podcast, also Facebook. We have our own page called WC Fish and the Working Class Fishing Podcast page. We are also on YouTube and we are on the Go Wild app. And of course, if you're listening to us, you know which uh, uh, platforms that we are listed on. So uh, you can find us at any one of the major listening platforms. Make sure to 
shoot us a line uh, if you're liking what you're hearing at workingclassfish at gmail.com. And make sure you also leave us five stars on this episode, especially for Bart, uh, because he came on here. He uh, spent his evening with us and shared a lot of great knowledge. So until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Hope you all have a wonderful day.